0: You're listening to the Vice Chancellor's Hour, a ministry of Radio ABC 993-FM on the campus of African Bible University. I'm Jeremiah Pitts, a professor and administrator here at the African Bible University in Uganda. The purpose of Vice Chancellor's Hour is to provide biblical and theological teachings that are an extension of the ministry of the university. Welcome back to another episode of the Vice Chancellor's Hour. We are working on a leadership series, looking at various people found in the Bible, examining specific portions of their stories. Some of these guys are really good guys and have done the right things. Some of them are terrible and they've done the wrong things. Sometimes we're looking at a guy's best day and sometimes his worst day. And this one is no different. We're looking today in Mark chapter 15. Now, I could have gone to any of the Gospels for this particular story. I happen to be kind of partial to the book of Mark, so I'm picking that one. But uh, this guy, he's mentioned in all of the Gospels. We're looking today at Pilate. This is what Mark 15 verse 14 says. Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? And they shouted, all the more, crucify him. Maybe you're a bit familiar with Pilate. Pontius Pilate is a fairly well-known and well-attested person, both inside Scripture and outside. I often think about the fact that when the church, the early church, put together summaries of what they believe, which we call creeds, there's not a lot of people mentioned in those creeds. And that's come up before I've mentioned it with uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus really the only person outside of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that are mentioned are Mary, the mother of Jesus, and our person today, Pontius Pilate. It may be a surprise to you to find him there, and it's been something that's been discussed quite a bit across Christian history, why the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, two of the most prominent creeds in all of Christendom, include him by name. Perhaps you're Surprised to find, he's actually mentioned several times throughout the New Testament. It's not just the Gospels, although we talked about that already, but also Peter mentions him by name in his sermon at Solomon's Portico found in Acts chapter 3. This is shortly after the events of Jesus' arrest, trial, and ultimately his crucifixion and resurrection. Peter is mentioning a man by name who is at that time in the vicinity. Not only that, in Acts chapter 4, we read about a church prayer, and it mentions Pilate by name as well as the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy found right there in Psalm 2. In Acts chapter 4, the reference to Pilate has to do with the fulfillment of Psalm 2, looking forward to a time when the Messiah would have heathen nations rage against him. And for the early church, the best example for that was Pontius Pilate, that he was the legal Roman representative in his area, and he acted against Jesus. Not only that, Paul mentions Pilate by name in his sermon in Acts 13, and again in his letter, uh, his first letter to Timothy. So he was the representative of all civil authority there in Jerusalem at the time, in fact, of all of Judea. And he exercised that authority uh, for about 10 years. A Caesar had appointed him to go there and to establish order. The region was kind of known for having insurrections and people who were trying to overthrow or problematize Roman rule. And Pilate's job was to make sure that didn't happen. He did sometimes do it through appeasement, where you try to make people happy uh, by giving them their demands, but he also did it sometimes. Through shows of force or actual force. And he did whatever he thought was the right choice at the time. He was the longest serving person in that place at his rank, although it didn't ultimately end up well for him. In today's story, the episode here is concerning when Jesus is brought before Pilate by members of the Sanhedrin. They had already tried him, tried Jesus, in their religious courts. So they had courts that examined people for religious infractions. They brought Jesus before them. Of course, they declared him guilty, but he was not guilty. They, in fact, had to break their own laws in order to declare him guilty. They brought false charges against him. They brought false testimony against him. Even the testimony was not able to agree with itself, and they utterly failed, really, to find anything that Jesus was guilty of. Nevertheless, they took offense at what Jesus said and declared him to be blasphemous. And at which point, of course, they abused him publicly. And this episode picks it up there where they take him to the civil authority. So these Jewish religious leaders are bringing Jesus before a Roman governor. And this guy's job is to represent the civil authority there in country. When he encounters Jesus, Pilate is quite skeptical, even in the book of Mark. But it doesn't take long for him to realize what's going on. Pilate was no fool. This is what the scriptures say. He perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered Jesus up. And later on it says, The crowd cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? This leads us to the first element of poor leadership that Pilate exhibits in this episode, and that is that Pilate acted unjustly. To act unjustly is a fantastic example of poor leadership. A good leader ought to be just. In this situation, Pilate knows fully well that Jesus is innocent of the charges. Not only that, he also knows correctly the motives of those who are trying to have him killed. He's a very savvy person. He's watched these chief priests. He no doubt has had interactions with them previously, and he understands that they simply are afraid of being replaced by Jesus. Jesus has the respect, he has the social authority that they themselves lack. You can read the Gospels and see that people were regularly amazed by Jesus, and amazed in a number of ways. And one of the things that often provoked that would be when representatives of these religious leaders would go to Jesus, and Jesus' response to them would cause them to be amazed. Now, they can't believe what Jesus is able to say, what Jesus is able to do. And, and these chief priests, these religious leaders of Jesus' time, They have the outward trappings of sincerity, but they do not have a heart transformed by God. It's hollow. And the result of that is instead of looking at Jesus and seeing the good that he was and the good he was able to do, they were filled with envy. And Pilate sees that. He gets it. And you might want to give him some credit for the fact that he recognizes, using his perception quite accurately, that these men are. Are doing this for wrong reasons. Not only that, but he recognizes, even though Jesus doesn't say anything really to strengthen his own case, nevertheless Pilate is able to see that Jesus is innocent. Pilate doesn't support Jesus's cause. He's in a position where these immoral people who are trying to have Jesus killed should be resisted, but instead he ultimately ends up doing their bidding. This is directly against what the scriptures teach about good leadership and in fact one of the ways that we understand what justice is the primary way we understand what justice is is through the revelation that we find in the scriptures that the bible itself teaches us what is a just and a right way to act and when we fail to act that way we are in fact acting unjustly leaders are responsible to do what's right themselves but not only that but also to support what's good to encourage what's good and to discourage What's evil? Here we find in Deuteronomy 16, verses 19 and 20, this stated quite clearly You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. We're here given clear instructions that what's true and right and good ought to be followed. What is false or partial ought to be rejected. This is a common theme that we find both in the law, in wisdom literature, later in New Testament writings of letters, such as we find in James. This idea that picking one person over another in the matters of justice, because of who they are, what their identity is, or because of where they come from, or because the fact that they have money that they give to you, that this is a sin of partiality. That what should be at the forefront is what's true and what's right and what's good. And that should be the means by which we judge justly. When we fail to do that, a person who is otherwise wise— In every other respect, they may be wise. In other respects, they may be just and righteous. But when this type of partiality comes in, then it moves them away from wisdom. It moves them away from what is righteous. And instead, their eyes are blind to what's true and what's right and what's good. That is a deep lesson for each of us. We cannot pick favorites. So two people come, and there's a dispute between them, and you like one of them and you don't like the other. That doesn't make the one you like the honest and right and good one. People we like sometimes do the wrong things. And people we don't like sometimes are right. Sometimes they are the one who's been harmed or the one who's been falsely accused. And so we should always judge on the merits of what's brought to us. In fact, other scriptures actually teach that we shouldn't even have separate laws for the foreigner and the person who's a citizen. In matters of justice, whether a crime took place or not, should be judged by the facts of the case, not by separate laws being applied. Here, Pilate knows Jesus is innocent, and yet Jesus, in his eyes, has no power. And these chief priests and this crowd do have power. And so Pilate bends to their will rather than protecting what's innocent and what's right and what's good. And for that reason, he is unjust and has executed a man who is innocent. Not only that, perhaps because of the great pressure he's under, Pilate makes another tragic flaw in leadership, which is that he outsources his responsibility. He attempts to outsource his responsibility. This is what the scripture says: Pilate answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And later it says, And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? That is, Pilate knows who's innocent, and Pilate knows who's guilty. But in rather than making a decision for himself, he puts the decision into the hands of others, or at least he attempts to put the decision into the hands of others. Pilate's looking for a way to set Jesus free. I think it is fair to say that. I think While he doesn't want to take responsibility, I think he had a preferred outcome, but he puts that into the hands of other people for them to decide, despite the fact that his position legally had full authority to commute sentences, to pardon, to declare someone innocent, and he had full Roman authority then to physically protect Jesus if he he so chose, or even to punish those evildoers who had falsely abused this man under false pretenses. He does none of those things. With that full authority invested in himself and a full knowledge that Jesus had done nothing wrong and a full knowledge that the people had brought him actually were the guilty parties, nevertheless, rather than standing up for Jesus, he puts the decision about what will happen to Jesus into someone else's hands. This is so that he himself does not, in his own eyes, appear guilty, and so that he has some level of plausible deniability. So that he can say to the people around him, well, it's, you know, it's what the crowds wanted. It's what the chief priest wanted. Or if he's set free, he can say, hey, listen, the the crowds wanted him free. What do you want me to do? in this case, by putting it into the people's hands when he should not have done so, a terrible injustice then is perpetrated that uh, someone who is innocent is killed. When we try to outsource our responsibilities, then we are abdicating the authority that we have been invested in. And you have authority if you're in a position of authority, not so you can have other people make the decisions for you, but so that you will responsibly make the decisions. And uh, Pilot here fails to do so. When we do that, almost inevitably bad things are going to happen. Not only that, but the way this works out is not only has he outsourced the responsibility, but one of his main motivating drives, we're told very clearly in the Scriptures, is a sense of appeasement, a sense of appeasement. This is what the Scripture says. Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. Now, if you remember the story, you may remember there's a man there in the Mark passage. He's only called Barabbas, we know from the other Gospels. His full name was Jesus Barabbas. And Barabbas there, sharing that common name with our Lord, is an insurrectionist. So he was someone who resisted Roman rule. That, in theory, makes him Pilate's enemy. In fact, legally, he's Pilate's enemy. Yeah, no doubt if Barabbas could, he would have removed Pilate physically instead. Barabbas had committed a murder and was in prison for it. And this is a very serious crime. One of the most serious things you can do anywhere, but definitely in the Roman Empire, is attempt to overthrow their rule. They never took that well, as you can imagine. Most countries don't. In fact, I don't know a single country that's okay with people trying to overthrow them. Pilate knows this. He knows it's true about Barabbas. And ironically, of course, that's exactly what Jesus, our Lord, is accused of, although he's innocent. He makes it very clear to Pilate, elsewhere in the Gospels, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, that his kingdom's not like what Pilate is thinking about. His kingdom is none of this world. He's not going to show up with soldiers with swords to destroy them. That's not how the kingdom is brought. So Pilate, in that sense, has nothing to worry about. But you see, Pilate isn't really being a good leader in this situation. The term leader, as you can imagine, just from the name, means to take people where they need to go, where where the best place for them. You need to actually lead them somewhere, provide guidance and instruction. So there are times when, of course, we need to listen to the people that we're leading, that we need to gather information. It's also a, a form of injustice to not listen to the groanings of the people, to not care about their suffering. And there's often information. That can be beneficial for us as leaders if we listen. But nevertheless, once we know what's right, and Pilate absolutely did know what was right, what the leader should do is then direct the people, guide the people into doing that right thing. Sometimes that's through a means of persuasion. That is, as we see in the book of Philemon, Paul in that book lets them know that uh, he could tell Philemon what to do. He has that full authority, but he would much rather that Philemon choose it for the right reasons out of love. So that would be a leading and persuading type of direction. We also see that sometimes leaders have to be direct and give orders. We're going to do the right thing. We're not going to do the wrong thing. And I don't care how big the crowd is. Instead, Pilate decides, I think kind of doing the calculus once again of, in his mind, how powerful is this Jesus? What does he have to gain by protecting him versus what does he have to lose if he stands up for the crowd? And he decides that appeasement, uh, that is making the crowd happy, whether they're right or wrong, and he thinks appeasement is probably his best direction. This is not a good leader listening, this is not a good leader listening and responding. This is a leader who knows what's right, but does not have the moral or physical courage to actually lead his people. There are things so important that we must be willing to lose our leadership and perhaps even our lives in order that we might do what's right. Some things are that significant. And this is precisely one of those things. In human terms, Pilate, as a human being, made a grave mistake by putting the appeasement of the crowds above what is good and true and right. The irony here, of course, is that Barabbas, who wasn't going to be released and is the enemy of Pilate, is now released. And the innocent guy, Jesus, is kept. Finally, and not only did he appease them, but his poor leadership manifests as extreme cruelty. His his poor leadership manifests as extreme cruelty. This is what it says in Mark fifteen fifteen. Having scourged Jesus, Pilate delivered him to be crucified. Having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, this is common practice at the time. There's a specific type of execution called crucifixion. We've talked about it in previous episodes in depth. But I've never spent a lot of time on scourging. And as many people have noted, the Gospels themselves, they don't go into great detail about what the scourging looked like. They don't give a lot of details. And one of the reasons for that, I believe, is because the people that it was written to would have known exactly what a scourging is. So they would have known the details of it, and uh, they would have known when it said Jesus was scourged and he was crucified, they would have known what was being talked about. But that's a little less obvious to people like you and me. There's a bit more distance between us and those events. And thankfully, we can look back through the lens of history, and we know uh, with you know, a great degree of certainty that when people were crucified, they were often scourged in this way when it talks about scourging here in this context, is a type of beating, but beating is not a strong enough word. As bad as it is if someone takes a stick and hits you with it, and that can be quite bad, this is actually far, far beyond this. Those types of beatings, like a beating with a stick, was considered a much lower level of punishment within their own system, and they had a different term for it. This word scourging uh, meant something so terrible that free Roman citizens were not allowed to be treated that way. So if you tried to scourge them, they had legal reasons to resist you and you actually could get in deep, deep trouble regardless of your power for scourging a free Roman citizen. Not only that, in some points of Roman history, it was actually illegal to scourge women at all and oftentimes they were not permitted to be witnesses of scourging. So you can imagine the type of brutal punishment it would be that you would say, well, uh, I don't think women should, should ever have this happen to them, and sometimes women should not even be allowed to watch it. Josephus, who is a, a historian from this region in this time, said that prior to crucifixion, what would often happen is the person who was supposed to be crucified, like Jesus, would have their clothes stripped off, and they would be stretched over a post— And then they would be beaten with pieces of leather that had tearing materials attached to them to rip the flesh. And we know from other things that are written around this time that that the flesh would actually be ripped down to the bone. There would be a lot of bleeding. I know this is gross, but I'm trying to give you a picture so you understand. It could rip so badly that a person's insides will come out. So this isn't, again, simply being beaten with a stick. That's rough business for sure. This is quite obviously far beyond it. In fact, it's so far beyond it that it can occasionally cause death. So sometimes people were killed by the scourging alone. They never made it to the next level of punishment. And there was no maximum number of lashes on the Roman form of scourging. So they did it until they felt like it was time to stop. And they didn't always stop at a time that left you Alive. Very common treatment before crucifixion and undoubtedly an unbelievable torture by anybody's standards. The brutality of the scourging, I think, is only exceeded by the brutality of crucifixion. The Romans really perfected this form of torturous death. It was intended purposefully to be painful, to be torturous, meaning it took time in excruciating pain where you were fighting for a life that you couldn't save, which was your own, and it was humiliating. People treated by crucifixion were frowned upon in certain elements of Roman society. The upper class people would not always even refer to it by name because it was so notorious. There is no doubt in my mind, based on the evidence we have of the Sanhedrin and of Roman rule at the time, that Jesus was turned over to Pilate in part, of course, to get the civil approval. They themselves say they don't have the ability to execute Jesus, but specifically because the type of execution for someone in Jesus's position, someone who has been accused of being an insurrectionist and rebellious and against Roman rule and so forth, Was crucifixion, and the Sanhedrin wanted to discredit him, discredit his powers as a Messiah, and to shame him publicly in front of everyone. You were affixed to beams, heavy beams, suspended between heaven and earth. Sometimes they were nailed to the wood, as in Jesus' case. In other cases, they were lashed to the wood. And you're in a position where it's difficult for you to maintain your own life. There's stress put on your system so that it's difficult for you to breathe and keep your lungs free of fluids. And you're straining against either the nails or your bonds and uh, in order to be able to keep your breath uh, going. As you weaken, you slowly suffocate to death from the inside out and you're doing this naked, abused, for the whole world to see. Uh, This is the death that Pilate picked for Jesus. He did it knowing Jesus was an innocent man. That's bad enough. But he applied scourging and crucifixion to Jesus so that he not only died uh, an unjust death, but also he suffered maximally in order to do that. It's a horrible thing to see, but it's often true that poor leadership, especially leadership who thinks that they have moral right on their side, often when they do unjust things, it results in great cruelty, as we see here. It's not just that Jesus is unjustly sentenced or convicted, but he's treated terribly at the hands of men, men who knew him to be innocent. Poor leadership It manifests itself in its injustice and its outsourcing of responsibility, its desire to appease rather than to lead, and its great cruelty. What ends up happening to Pilate? Well, history tells us that uh, Pilate, who had often found himself at odds with the local population, ultimately has to go to uh, the new Caesar and make an answer for himself. He fails to do it adequately and is banished from the empire, and never to be heard from again. And what of Jesus and Barabbas? Well, Barabbas' name means son of the father, and yet the true son of the heavenly father is the one who's killed, and it's the false son who lives. Jesus was accused of being an insurrectionist, even though he was actually innocent, and yet Barabbas was the one who was actually guilty of the very charge. And we see in this a very clear picture of our salvation That Jesus, the innocent, dies, and yet you and I are Barabbas. We're the ones who should be executed, but Christ is executed in our place. Us, the guilty. Him, the innocent. For our lives, he shed his life. If you believe on him, that he took the punishment of your sin, the wrath of God, for you and for me on himself, you believe this, grab hold of it by faith you will be saved to the uttermost. That's our Christ. In an unjust world full of bad leadership, our Christ, well, he can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. He makes all things new. Praise be to God. I hope that's an encouragement to you this week and every week. You're listening to the Vice Chancellor's Hour, a ministry of Radio ABC 993-FM on the campus of African Bible University. I'm Jeremiah Pitts, a professor and administrator here at the African Bible University in Uganda. The purpose of Vice Chancellor's Hour is to provide biblical and theological teachings that are an extension of the ministry of the university.